0: Thank you, Sarah. All my technology here. I've got my my iPad, my notes. have got the Word. I've got my iPhone. David's watching the governor's uh, message right now and it's going to send us live feedback about what uh, that statement will be today. Praise God that we have this time together to worship together. I believe that everyone here who's, who's been worshiping live with us five months. We haven't had any case of COVID related to worship together. Praise God for that. But I think we can attest to to it. And for you at home, if you've been able to visit us or not, to say this has been a very special time to be uh, together in worship. So we invite you at home to also be with us here in this place. Pray This is a a special time of God's anointing for us to be hearing God's word. I pray that God would help me say what he, he wants me to say this morning. So today we have our seventh and final building block in our series, uh, Built to Last. When church was was family, we've been looking at these building blocks that Jesus has designed, he's integrated into the very fabric of how a church is built, the genius plan that he had for his church to withstand anything that comes our way, any storm, any, any attack. These seven building blocks, these living blocks that a church is meant to be built upon, so it will last. And so just by way of review, this is our last Sunday of seven. Uh, this will be the last week that we have uh, small groups meeting, uh, probably at Zooming uh, today. Uh, the, just by way of review, the first one was that we're going to be a spirit-filled church. We're going to be gospel-driven, Christ-centered, Bible-based, a peacemaking church, a well-led church. And this morning, even as Sarah mentioned, and so did Cindy, an outward-focused church. And so you'll hear me talk about being an outward-focused church, and I'll combine that with being a generous church, because I think those two go together, being outward-focused and generous. And we see that in the church in Antioch. They were very much an outward-focused church and a very generous church as they were pursuing following our Lord, and we can learn from them. So let's read together. This will be on the screen and, and you can look at your own Bible at home or as you're sitting here or your tablet. Acts chapter 11, verse 27 and following. It says, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them was named Agabus. He stood up and through the spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Paul. So Luke writes that prophets, more than one, these prophets, Agabus, what an unfortunate name, I don't know if you've ever named anyone of that, uh, came from Jerusalem down to Antioch. And, the, and geographically, that would be the direction. You would go south and, and a little east from headquarters of Jerusalem to Antioch in modern day Turkey. Now, uh, pro- prophets are one of the fivefold ministries of the church we don't often think about or consider. We think of pastors, uh, we think of teachers, but prophets were an important aspect and still today in the life of the church. Now, when we think of prophet, what do we often think of? We think of someone who can predict the future, can can read the tea leaves or magic eight ball and kind of predict what's going to come. And that's not really what the Scriptures speak about when they talk about the gift of prophecy, the spiritual empowering of those God calls and anoints to be a prophet. That's not the primary meaning in Scripture, although there are aspects of that. But, But prophecy in Scripture has much more to do with speaking the truth. Speaking God's word to God's people, even if it steps on toes. People with the spiritual gift of prophecy uh, don't mince their words. They they just say it how they see it. And oftentimes, in saying that, thus saith the Lord, they're calling out sin. Sin of hypocrisy, greed, corruption. And, and prophets don't mind if they lose friends over saying what's true. That's the gift of prophecy. And really inject what's really real, cut to the chase what God would have for us. That's more often than not how the prophets we see in Scripture are used. And so by that extension, we could imagine that Agabus and these other prophets that come down from Jerusalem are coming there with a word from the Lord. They're going to come and and set things straight. Now, in, in this case, I don't know that it would... Could be considered. It might be a stretch to consider that what Agabus did was prophecy in the in the sense of predicting future events. It says the Holy Spirit worked through him, and that that he gave this prediction of a famine that would a severe famine that would that would hit Judea and all of the Roman Empire. And I would submit to you, as I said in our very first message on this series about being spirit-filled, that I don't know that that was some great stretch of the imagination to to predict that, that the Holy Spirit needed to work through him for that word. Why? Because we know from extra-biblical materials that there were severe shortages, and there was bad harvests, and there was bad weather, and even drought throughout the Roman Empire. Terrible mismanagement under Claudius' reign, such that there's records of famines in Rome, Greece, Egypt, this is all of the Roman Empire, as well as Judea. And Judea would have been way down the list of priorities. Rome would have been first, right? You take care of your own, and then the priorities would go all the way down to these outskirts of Judea, this occupied territory. They would have the dregs. And so, if there was any kind of shortage of food or supply, they clearly would be the ones that would lose out. So, I'm I'm thinking as I'm looking at this, is that the stretch that we're supposed to understand of the Holy Spirit here? Because Agabus definitely was a prophet anointed by the Holy Spirit. Instead of delivering a a message of prediction, and instead of delivering a message of conviction to the church in Antioch, what I believe was happening here was the Holy Spirit in the midst of that worship service, was first and foremost working in his heart. The conviction, the calling out hypocrisy, the setting things straight, the non-mincing of words had to first be heard in the heart of agonists. And then he needed to respond to what the Holy Spirit was prompting him to say, as difficult as that might be. Remember the context. Those of you who have been following along for some time, you know the context of the story. Here it is, the church in Jerusalem, the first church commissioned by Jesus to go forth and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Here in Jerusalem, the first place where the Holy Spirit came with power and anointed the disciples and the apostles to be able to speak gospel truth to God-fearing people from every type of tongue and tribe that were gathered there in Jerusalem. They were charged to go and take the good news to the nations, and yet the church in Jerusalem was predominantly a Jewish church. Now, there are some examples in Acts, some one-offs of examples of taking the gospel to Gentiles, only a few. They can look at Acts chapter 8, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who's converted. There's one. An inward-focused church would always hold out that one example. Hey, we have that one uh, Ethiopian, right? We're an outward-focused church. We got that one example, right? Be- besides that one example, few and far between examples. Instead, the church in Jerusalem, when they hear about this new church far away in Antioch that is supposedly made up of converts, Gentiles, pagans, who are now saying they are followers of Jesus, that they are followers of the Messiah, they're suspicious of it from the get-go. That's why they sent Barnabas in the first place, to check things out. What's going on here? This seems a little shady because we know these people in Antioch are not following Jewish customs. And now here a year has gone by, and so now Jerusalem has to ratchet up the rhetoric, aren't they? Let's send Agabus and a couple of our prophets. They'll straighten them out. What happens when they get there? Well, they see what Barnabas saw. They see a spirit-filled church, a gospel-driven church. They they see that Christ is at the center of everything they're doing. They understand that over the course of a year, both Barnabas and Paul have been teaching this church God's word. They can see this as a church that is a peacemaking church. They're bringing peace between both Gentile and Jewish people, so much so they're calling each other family. They're entering in some kind of new category. Word is getting out that they are this new thing called Christian. And so I could be out on a limb in my interpretation, but I believe Agabus was convicted by the Holy Spirit of what was actually happening in this place. For far too long, Agabus and his fellow prophets and the teachers in Jerusalem, many of them were considering the people in Antioch as second-class citizens. Not true followers. Not certainly in the covenant. And yet seeing this, and having in the context of of a worship service, the Holy Spirit, work in his life I believe that conviction in Agnes meant that he swallowed his pride, he checked himself, and then he spoke a word. Brothers, sisters, there's a severe famine coming to Judea. We need your help. Imagine how far he would have to come from a place of self-righteousness and looking down his nose at them to come to the point of calling them brother and sister sincerely saying, we need help. I think that was the power of the Spirit moving in that place. And the Antiochians, they had every right to respond if they were still pagan, if they truly weren't born again, to say, forget you, man. Take care of your own. I mean, that's the way things got done back then. You took care of your own, your own tribe, your own people, your own city people. Hey, if you're in Judea, take, go back to Judea and you figure it out. We're going to take care of our own. That's not how they responded. How do they respond to this minute of mission? Uh, we have these, our own minute for mission. The minute for mission comes about a severe famine and how do they respond? It says, the disciples, each one as each one was able decided right there and then to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Paul. The church in Antioch was rich in good deeds and rich towards those in need. They were a generous church. They were an outward-focused church, and they, they rightly used the proper ordering of taking this offering trusting it to the elders, trusting it to Paul and and Barnabas to make sure that the money gets to the right place. They set aside their hard feelings. They set aside any sense of being offended. They set aside conflict, which still hasn't been resolved, by the way. There's still that conflict over issues of doctrine and, and theology. That still hasn't been sorted out. We get there in chapter 15. And they said, we're going to set aside our differences that we have with you. And we're going to step up and help. Note the phrase, as each was able, they decided. I think that means that each person or or family made a decision of how they were going to give. Their arms weren't being twisted. They weren't being forced to give. As each decided, they made this decision. And I I also think that it implies that the giving was proportional. They didn't say, okay, this group over here, you give this many gold shekels or whatever, and then you guys give This much silver, they just said proportionally, as each was able, they gave. Now, again, I'm really out on a limb here because here I've already said what I think how I would interpret Agapus. How is it these people were prompted to make this move so quickly to give so much of a sacrifice that would save people's lives in Judea? Well, we know that Barnabas and Paul were there for a year teaching them. What was their curriculum? Any ideas? What did they teach? They, they talked about Jesus, yes? And I could imagine within that context of a year of teaching and a year of understanding theology for, for certain, but then also the implications and the ramifications of following Jesus, it had to do with a Christian life. And Jesus talked about money and stewardship more than almost any other subject, so I could imagine that Paul and Barnabas also talked about stewardship. Stewardship of all of life. Finances, yes, but also time, support, resources. We see this in Paul's writings. His letters, they're called epistles to the churches. Let me give you an example from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And And Cindy actually mentioned that same book uh, earlier. This is a a church that was in trouble, was running through some hard stuff. Paul wrote one letter. That didn't seem to do the trick. They were still in trouble. He wrote a second letter. And yet within that context, a church that was really uh, struggling, he talks about stewardship. He says this in verse 6 and following. Remember this, he says to the church in, in Corinth. The person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Saying as we are generous out of the abundance of what God has given to us, of treasure, but also our time, our resources, and And investment in ministry, he says, it will return to us. Everything you need will be provided for in Christ, but then so much more will come, he's saying to the church there. He's encouraging generous people. He wants generosity to flow from their hearts. He says, God loves a cheerful giver. And then it says in verse 10 and 11, now he who supplies the seed to the sower, he's using an agricultural reference here, and bread for food, will also supply and increase your store of seed, and will enlarge the harvest of your bank account. What does it say? No righteousness. You'll increase the storehouse, the harvest of your rightness with God, your fellowship with Jesus. You'll be living more and more in the new life of Christ experiencing his righteousness. You will be enriched, quote, in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. It's going to make God happy. It's going to please God that his people are generous. So what was he teaching? What do we teach as a church? That God owns everything. Yes and Amen. Cattle on a thousand hills, and he has graciously given us the precious gift of his son that we might have new life. And now, out of the reservoir, the, the countless reservoir of God's riches, he gives us different amounts in different ways, blessings, material blessings, blessings of opportunity, as stewards of that for his good purposes, for his glory and for our ultimate good. This is the outward mindset that I believe was being taught to the church there that we need to teach as a church here. You know, funny thing, my, my previous church uh, changed up the order of service, which probably hadn't happened since the 1950s. I'm not even kidding you. Uh, when I was there, they, we they decided they wanted to take the offering before the sermon and not after the sermon when I was there. And that was because uh, there was some grumbling among uh, the brethren that my sermons were too convicting when it came to stewardship. Uh, so I, I hope you haven't been too convicted yet. Maybe you have, but uh, apparently I just was was too much of of a uh, of a cause of consternation. So they said, "Let's take the offering ahead of time before Pastor Pete gets to speak." And why was that? Because well, once a year the offering. Uh, would be taken for the for the year. Once a year there would be a stewardship campaign, a couple of quick messages, and one sermon and the pastor sort of, I don't know. Mm, I'm so sorry I have to talk. We gotta talk about money. We gotta talk about giving of our time. Uh, so sorry. I don't know about you. I was unapologetic. Yeah. We need you, church. Let's step up, church. Let's serve. This is central to what it is to be a Christian, steward of all that God's given us, to be an outward-focused church. So I know I'm sort of preaching to the choir here, literally. Look, at seeing everyone sitting here with mass, Maybe you at home, too. You get it. This is key to living out the Christian walk and our response to what God has given us, his riches left in heaven becoming poor that we might become rich. And so, for you here in sanctuary, maybe you at home, you've probably have heard this. There could be cringeworthy here. He's going to talk about about stewardship, but it's not really. It's a source of great, great blessing. The tithe, ten percent of our pre-tax income, is a proportional way of giving to the kingdom. Work. We know this is taught in scripture. We also know that Jesus fulfilled the law. That means he filled it full of meaning. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, but I say to you. And he always brings it, he ratches it up, doesn't he? You've heard it said, this is what's required of you. There's so much more being asked of you. Take on, on, me, on yourself my yoke. It's easy and light and you will follow me. And so in the same way, Jesus says to us, yes, this is the law, but we're going to fulfill it. We're going to expand that meaning. And I share this for just a moment here, not by way of tooting my horn or for you to say, oh, well, Pastor Pete and Cheryl, but I think that's important for you to know what your pastor is doing, right? We're not just preaching it, but we're trying to walk it. So I want to share with you about my own stewardship of God's resources and tell you up front and she's watching from home. Cheryl, my beautiful wife of 26 years, she taught me how to be a better steward of our resources. I was making 8 bucks an hour when we were first married, and she said, we're going to give 10% of it to the church. I said, what now? Wait, we're going to do what? But God is faithful, and God has blessed us. And so, church, we do give 10% of our income pre-taxed to the church, to the ministries of, of our church, and that is the beginning of our giving. We also give to our mission council, to our deacon's ministry, to various other charities, and perfect strangers. I've got my mother-in-law right here in the second row. She's modeled that to me and to us as well. Out of the riches of God's grace, he's been so generous to us. We teach here at MVC proportional giving, giving a percentage of your income from the reserve God has entrusted to you. Now we know this. We know the cold hard facts are the average American evangelical gives about 3% to the to kingdom work. Here at MVC, we have to, we, we set up our budget in such a way that you need to give directly to our deacons fund and to our mission council fund. And we encourage you to do that yearly We're or around, around the clock yearly. We're sharing minute for missions. We're sharing opportunities to serve even now, especially coming into the holidays. But if you take all of the income to the church, if we're sitting around the church, a big uh, family table, we're talking about Uh, our finances as a church. Our giving towards outreach, towards kingdom purposes through deacons and missions makes up 15% of that total income. We're heavily invested in outward-focused ministry. Our preschool is an outward-focused ministry needed now more than ever When I started in youth ministry, it was still a time when they'd said, you know, if you can reach someone with the gospel by the time they're 18, you have a far better opportunity for them to really hear the good news of Jesus. Because after that, when they get to college, the world just kind of pulls people away from even having ears to hear. And then then that age kept moving earlier and earlier, earlier in high school into middle school, and now it's elementary school. The opportunity to share the life-giving path of following Jesus. And with Proposition 90 passing, friends, we need to train our parents up to know how to educate their own kids and how to rightly understand the world in which they're living. This is our outward focus as a church. And then next Sunday, where's Sarah? She's somewhere, well, there she is. Sarah will be introducing and launching our new foster care and adoption ministry. And we talked about financially, not Probably won't cost that much to get started. But think of all the things that we need to be good stewards of, our time and energy and attention, making room and space in our community for new people who are in need of help. Families, kids that are separated from their birth parents, making room for a place to say, you are family to us. So we invest in our mission partners locally and globally. We send people on mission. We invest in our staff. I've just learned that some $50,000 has been invested over the past number of months through COVID to care for certainly covenant partners. Those are what we call members of our church, but also for people, people in the community, people that are jobless or are underemployed. Because of your generosity, Maple Valley Church, someone has a roof over their heads tonight. A warm place to stay. Their utilities are kept on. We're keeping families as a family unit in their residence instead of couch surfing or in their car. It's literally happening because of your generosity. People are being fed and clothed. (laughs) <laughs> looking at the budget this past week with our, our financial stewards. We have a break-even, very conservative budget, and yet we're still, by God's grace and by your generosity, we're paying down our, our loan and we're saving towards building needs and we're planning going forward, big future plans. We have to see that preschool expand and add more classrooms and more opportunity to reach out to an ever-growing community. This is not an inward-focused church. This is an outward-focused focused church, and I'm thankful to be a part of it. So we see the church in Antioch being outward-focused, generous, sending their leaders their best of their best to go plant churches, supporting them on mission trips. We'll see Paul and Barnabas go out on their first mission trip and come back. Later, Paul and Silas going out and coming back, out and back, and think about if we had more time to talk about all those that have been raised up in this church who are out in the mission field. Who are now serving in churches. But more than that, so many more who've been trained up and are using their vocation outside of, of straight up ministry, but in, in all forms of service in our community and, and expertise and profession and being light and salt and Jesus followers in businesses, in classrooms, in offices. We're doing all this out of conviction that we're here to help families. And we're called by God to give away ourselves to his service, to his ministry. And what a strange time this is. This would normally be the time with our Say Yes campaign that we'd have so many volunteers. We'd have at least 50 volunteers on a Sunday morning running our children's ministry. All of that is somewhat on hold, isn't it? It's sort of strange. David sending me an update here on on all that's happening, restrictions through December 14th. Okay. So far, he's saying 25% capacity, no choirs, ensembles, or bands, only solo. Do you really want to hear Rob Wood sing just himself? Won't that just ruin our worship? Won't that just be terrible? See, I think God's got a great sense of humor just like you do. Oh, this is going to be so hard. No, it's not. That's what the church is built for. We're built to last. This is what's happening right here. That God will meet, listen, for those of you who are struggling with this, this question, Lord, what's coming? What's coming, Let me say this. God will meet any need created by our generosity. So we will keep on investing resources to advance God's kingdom, friends. God will sustain us through these hard times for good times that are to come. Amen? We exist as a church for other people. Yes, for our covenant partners, those that call this church their home, but for perfect strangers. We exist to bless our enemies even. That's what Jesus wants us to do. Pray for your enemies. What good is it, he says, what good is it to love those who love you back? He says, you to be a follower of me. Love those who don't love you. That's why we exist as a church. The moment we start to think, well, let's, let's huddle up. Let's tighten, let's tighten up. Maybe we should, should cut back on some of that outreach, Pastor Pete. Maybe we should trim the sails a bit more, take care of our own. We have to be reminded of Jesus' words. John 10, 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. He's talking about being the great shepherd who brings in his sheep. He says, there's other sheep that are out there. He says, I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Christian generosity is a lifestyle, folks. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, to see the needs around us. Like Agabus, to see in people that we would otherwise write off and say, no, no, they're they're not the kind of people that comes to our church. Help us to see, Lord, what you see. Help us, Holy Spirit, to have a heart, like you have a heart for the lost and the lonely in this world. That's why we exist as a church. For all that he's given to us, though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. These new stay-at-home orders will be a challenge, but that's what we're built for, right, church? That's what we're built for. Our goal is to follow Jesus, to obey his great commission and his great commandment. We'll continue to do that with all these seven blocks at work. But the one that I think will be the capstone, the one that on the other side of this will look back and say, look what happened as we were so generous. I mean, we, we operate in a way that a church or any organization wouldn't operate, you keep spending money and giving it away, that's foolish, foolhardy. I believe on the other side of this will be a tremendous blessing. I'd like to invite Cindy and her team to come up and, and I'll just take a moment to close in prayer. Lord, we don't know how these circumstances that we face as a state, as a nation, will sort themselves out, Lord. I certainly am no prophet. But God, you have spoken a word that needs to convict me, first and foremost. And then if it's a word that is, brings encouragement or even uh, a challenge to us, Lord, uh, may, may that be the case. God, in this quiet moment here in this room and at home, people watching, I, I pray that we could set aside distractions, set aside our phone for a moment, close our eyes, put our hands together, Lord. And together, just take this quiet moment to listen for your leading. In the Holy Spirit, we pray for those in our community that are really struggling right now. Pray for the lost and the lonely. Pray for all those that are saying right now, I can't take another stay-at-home order. God, help us to be the church, to reach out in love with, without any motivation for anything in return to ourselves, but simply, Lord, to bring your blessing to one another and to other people. We pray, God, that the gospel message would be heard, and we would preach it to ourselves this day and always. I love how Cindy began the worship of, of saying we need to be reminded of the goodness of God in our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done for us, Lord, that you went to Calvary. It says in God's word, setting aside its shame, Lord God, you, you went to Calvary for the, for the incredible gift set before you the goal of our salvation. Lord God, may we walk in the footsteps of your Son, our Lord, and truly be, genuinely be, worthy of the name Christ, follower and disciple. Amen.